The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. That's right. Bear down, Bears fans. It's time for another edition of the Chicago Bears podcast, Bears Banter, powered by Windy City Gridiron and SB Nation, Bill Zimmerman with you. And it is Super Bowl week. It is always a fun week, always a lot of things going on. A lot of quotes will be coming out of the media. A lot of rumors will be flying around Las Vegas. And we will start the end of the 2023 season this week and the beginning of the 2024 season on Monday, the, what is it going to be, the 12th of February. So let's get into this podcast. We got a guest coming up here in a little bit, Jack Silverstein, of course, at Reed Jack on Twitter. I'm guessing most of you follow him already, but he is the Chicago sports historian. I mean, he, he looks at things nationally as well, but Chicago sports, there's nobody better than Jack. He knows these things so well, and he is... I would almost say obsessed with the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He has mock Hall of Fames. He's parts of committees. He writes about it all the time. You can catch his stuff on Windy City Gridiron. He's done some awesome stuff on Devin Hester and his Hall of Fame candidacy. So we're going to have Jack on here because the Chicago Bears have three people up for the Hall of Fame. Four if you want to count Jared Allen, but three people up for the Hall of Fame with, of course, Devin Hester, Steve McMichael, and Julius Pepper. So we're we're going to talk about it here a little bit with the Hall of Fame. We're going to get Jack on. Wanted to do this, you know, with, with the Super Bowl week. Not going to be, personally, not going to be down at the Super Bowl this year. First one I've missed, other than the COVID year, in a very long time. I believe 2008? Seven? Somewhere in there. It's been a very long time since I missed the Super Bowl. But I will be a spectator this week. I will not be down with the media in Las Vegas. God, personally, kind of bummed. I've been to so many of these Super Bowls, but they finally put it in Las Vegas, and that's the one I don't happen to be going to. But that's all right. That's all right. So let's talk about the game here for just a couple minutes. Then we'll get into the Hall of Fame, a couple other things before we bring Jack on. To me, this one is an odd one that the Kansas City Chiefs are underdogs in this Super Bowl. Two, two and a half points, depending on what books you're looking at. 
That to me is crazy. And and I get what the 49ers have done, but the Chiefs have beaten better opponents in the playoffs. I think they've looked better in the playoffs. And then if you break it down, I mean, who would you rather have, Kyle Shanahan or Andy Reid? I, I like Kyle Shanahan. He's a very good coach, but Andy Reid, it's pretty hands down for me. Quarterback, do you want arguably the best quarterback in NFL history, at worst maybe second best quarterback in NFL history, or a guy that people can't even decide if he's a system quarterback or an actually good quarterback in Brock Purdy. I like Brock Purdy. It's a great story what he's been able to do, but give me Patrick Mahomes. Then let's look at the defense, which the 49ers have a good defense, but that Chiefs defense has been elite this year. Give me the Chiefs defense. So then we get to offensive weapons, and here finally is where the 49ers have an edge, and they have a significant edge. That you know, I understand Travis Kelsey is there, Rasheed uh, Rice is, is pretty good, but but other than that, you know, between Christian McCaffrey and, and Samuel and and Ayuk and, and, and Kittle and everyone, yeah, the 49ers have the edge there. That, that, that's obvious. So the idea, I mean, to me, most of the time, who has the better quarterback, who has the better coach? If, if the rest of the rosters, there's strengths and weaknesses, but if the rest of the rosters are anywhere close, anywhere close, and, and I think they are here, the 49ers have a better roster, but but the Chiefs obviously have plenty of talent. I mean, you got Chris Jones on the defensive line. That's certainly going to you know shift some momentum. Uh, I think the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win this game. I, I have confidence that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win this game. I'll be I'll be putting money on that money line. I, I don't need the points. I think the Kansas City Chiefs win this, and and I'm not even like I, I would. Ex- I think the Chiefs should be favored by a field goal, three and a half, maybe even maybe even give them the hook. Like I, I think that number is a bad number. I'm I am quite surprised, honestly, with that. So. I believe the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win this. That means another ring for Matt Nagy and, you know, more speculation that Andy Reid's going to retire. And I don't know why Andy Reid would retire. I mean, this guy is, I think, you know, I don't think he's going to get there, but I think he's he's 66 and I think he's 70 wins away from Don Shula for the record. And Bill Belichick, who knows what's going on with him now? He may not get to Shula. Andy Reid is 70 wins away from Shula with, what, 28? I don't know what Patrick Mahomes is. 28-year-old Patrick Mahomes? Like, you you coach Patrick Mahomes for four or five more years, and you let's say you win an average of 11 games a year. I don't think that's too difficult to ask for if Patrick Mahomes stays healthy and continues to be who he is. Andy Reid's winning 300 games, and he's going to get right up by Shula. So I don't know why Andy Reid would want to go anywhere. Keep winning rings, keep winning games, and and cement yourself as one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest coach in NFL history, depending on how he finishes here. So I I think it's a no-brainer for Andy Reid to keep coaching. I don't think he's going to retire. I don't see why he would want to retire. But, of course, if he does, that'll start the speculation that Matt Nagy takes over the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, and oh boy, would Chicago Bears just love that one. So to, to me, this is a pretty straightforward game. Uh, like I said, I think it's Kansas City's game to lose. I think Patrick Mahomes probably going to win another Super Bowl MVP, and we are going to be inundated with Taylor Swift stuff, which I'm fine with. I I, I find the Taylor Swift the, I find the Taylor Swift impact on the NFL fascinating. I, I really do. I really don't care if she's on the screen for a minute during the Super Bowl because every time Travis Kelsey catches the ball or scores a touchdown, they're going to show her. Okay, I I don't care. 
Yeah, I mean, how many Lakers games did I watch over the years where they put Jack Nicholson on the screen time and time and time again? How is that any different? How, how about Blackhawks games where Vince Vaughn is in attendance and they show Vince Vaughn or Gene Siskel at Bulls games? Like, I mean, I don't care what level celebrity you are. If there's a celebrity in the stands, they're going to show them. And if it's a fan of the team and they're there regularly, they're going to show them. So they're going to show Taylor Swift. They're going to ride. The, who cares? I, I don't understand this pushback against Taylor Swift and, and everything. But, you know, the story that came out that Taylor Swift has basically increased the marketing value of the Kansas City Chiefs and, and basically made the Chiefs franchise $335 million more valuable. I mean, it's remarkable what this woman has done just being around the NFL. So I think it's fascinating. I think it's fun. I love the fact that she's going to be around the Super Bowl because I think it's just going to be this whole other storyline. I, I don't understand the, this. Oh, we this is terrible. Why I, I, I'm sick of seeing her and all this. Enough. Like, I, I, I really don't think it's a big deal. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I think it's fun. So I'm looking forward to this Super Bowl. And then, of course... Right after the Super Bowl, we'll be hitting that combine maybe two weeks later and then into free agency and then the draft. And this Bears offseason will get rocking and rolling. So let's move over into the Hall of Fame. Let's talk Hall of Fame a little bit. No, I did a little bit with Ron Rivera, but wanted to do it again here with Jack Silverstein. It is Super Bowl week. That means it is Hall of Fame week. That that um, class, there you go, Bill, use your brain. That class, the Hall of Fame class is going to be announced on Thursday, and we will see about the fates of Steve McMichael, Julius Peppers, and Devin Hester. Let's start with Steve McMichael. First of all, and I'll give you a little prediction in or out. Steve McMichael is in. It's an, an essence when the senior committee gets guys to this level, it is a rubber stamp. He is going to get in, and it is awesome, and I hate to be morbid about it, but it is awesome that he is still alive and that he now knows his, the, the voting has already happened. The voting happened a couple weeks ago. It is embargoed until until this Thursday. But so I, I'm going to guess that they told Steve McMichael ahead of time, hey, Steve, it is official. You are a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And, and it is awesome that he got to learn that. That is so cool for him. I love that he, he has been such a fighter and that he has reached this point. But that aside, Steve McMichael deserves this recognition. And I think... What, what's happened here with the senior committee is there were some guys that, for whatever reason, got lost in the weeds. And this is going to happen. Through, it's not like it happened to a certain era. It was like 1980s players that got lost. No, this has happened through time. And I'm sure there are great players from the 1940s or 1950s that didn't get their look. And even the senior committee isn't even thinking about looking at them right now. Like this, this happens. It's just part of the process, you know. And, and, you know, in baseball, basketball, hockey, it's all the same. Sometimes players get lost. So the senior committee kind of got overhauled to really look at these candidates that are no longer modern era candidates and have to get in through a different path and say, who who, who did we miss? And, and really work for that. And and this, this senior committee has worked towards things to the point that when senior committees finalize and have, you know, two, three names here to put forth for the vote, the vote at that point is a rubber stamp because the senior committee has already decided that they are worthy of the Hall of Fame. So unless they did something weirdly egregious and the rest of the room is agitated and, and is going to vote someone down for some reason, at, when, at this point, when it gets to the room for the vote, it's a rubber stamp. So Stephen Michael's going to get in. It's like a 99.9% .9 certainty. So that's great news for him. And it's a deserving 
honor for him because again, what happened is I think the, I mean, we say the 85 bears, but I mean the eighties bears because the eighties bears kind of, you know, that defense was up and coming for a few years. If you know a lot about that, you know, when, when they, they fired uh, the coach, Neil Armstrong, the, the, the defense wrote a letter to George Hallis saying, Buddy Ryan needs to remain this defensive coordinator. We're on to something. They hire Mike Ditka. George Hallis says, keep Buddy Ryan. Mike Ditka says, okay. And of course, Buddy Ryan grows with his defense. By 1984, they're a dynamite defense. 85, 86, they're legendary. 87, 88, they're still very good. So they had this stretch where they were really, really good. And for the most part, it was the same same defense, right? Couple changes here or there. William Perry comes in in 1985. Mike Hartenstein kind of gets pushed aside. Wilbur Marshall leaves for Washington in 1986. It kind of gets Ron Rivera more action. Dave Duerson takes over for Todd Bell because Todd Bell, big mistake, sat out the 1985 season over a contract dispute. Oops. So rookie Dave Duerson comes in. But, you know, you know, and Dave Duerson and Todd Bell replaced Doug Plank. So, you know, but for the most part, you had this same core. You had Richard Dent. Dan Hampton, Steve McMichael, Otis Wilson, Mike Singletary, Gary Fensick. Like you had the same core of this defense. And what's happened here is Mike Singletary had been propped up on tons of all pros. He was a lock. Richard Dent, massive sack number, Super Bowl MVP. He was a lock. Dan Hampton took a little bit longer to get in. Defensive, you know, tackle and a defensive end could play inside and outside. Was just a handful, just a monster, really. So Hampton gets in, and then you start sitting there going, well, how many Hall of Famers are we going to put in from a team that only won one Super Bowl? You know, if the Bears had won two or three Super Bowls, we could talk about some of these other guys, but they only won one. And, of course, we know that that was because they had no quarterback because Jim McMahon couldn't stay healthy. And when Jim and here's the thing. Like, people make fun of Jim McMahon's record with the Chicago Bears because it's so inflated, but it's hilariously inflated. I'm going to bring up Jim McMahon's stats here really quick because this is always great radio and a great podcast when people are actually Googling things on the air live. But that's what we're doing here because what happened is this Bears defense was so good, the offense didn't have to do much. And Jim McMahon was a good quarterback. Jim McMahon wasn't a great quarterback. So Jim McMahon's records here, you know, he goes 7-2, 11-0, 6-0, 5-1, in that big stretch. So he won 18, 24, 29, 36 games and lost five. So in a in a five-year stretch, Jim McMahon was 36 and five as the starting quarterback of the Chicago Bears. And nobody talks about it because of the fact that that defense was so good, and they, they only basically lost games when Steve Fuller or Mike Tomzak or Doug Flutie or whatever crap quarterback was out there because then the offense was completely stalled out. So had Jim McMahon stayed healthy, 36-5, and five, had Jim McMahon been able to stay healthy, this Bears team would have won more Super Bowls. But we, ne- we don't play the what-if game. They won the one, and, and we look at the defense and say, yeah, Richard Dent, Dan Hampton, Mike Singletary, all great players. But Steve McMichael, and I said it to Ron Rivera a couple weeks ago, you know, check out the podcast. Just scroll back maybe eight to ten podcasts, the Ron Rivera episodes there. You can also go to the Second City Gridiron YouTube page. Check out the video of Ron Rivera there and and the interview we had. It was a lot of fun because Ron Rivera was actually one of my coaches in high school. So a lot of fun to talk to Ron. I hadn't had a chance to interview him like that before. 
So that was a lot of fun. But like I told Ron Rivera, I'm like, I felt like Steve McMichael was the engine to that defense. Like he was the one kind of driving everything. And Rivera agreed. And he talked about it. Like Steve McMichael didn't get, I mean, Steve McMichael would collapse the pocket before NFL defenses and offenses realized how important it was to collapse the pocket. Collapse the pocket and you force quarterbacks, they can't step up in the pocket, they get flushed out to Dent, they get flushed out to Hampton, and you get more sacks. So Steve McMichael was, you know, an influence on getting others sacks, but Steve McMichael still got home a lot on his own and got sacks and was one of the great interior pass rushers in the history of the league. And sure, it helped him that he didn't get a lot of double teams because William Perry was gigantic and needed double teams. And of course, Dent needed double teams and Hampton needed double teams. Steve McMichael needed double teams too, but you couldn't double team him all the time because of all this other talent. And of course, Buddy Ryan's blitzing 90 guys at a time. So, you know, that helped Steve McMichael, sure, in terms of sack numbers, but you don't take away Deacon Jones' sack numbers because Merlin Olsen was on the other side. You don't take away Reggie White's sack numbers because Jerome Brown and so many other talented defensive linemen were next to him. You you appreciate that there is greatness all around and greatness props everyone up. On a lesser scale, Montez Sweat shows up and suddenly Demarcus Walker and Justin Jones play much better, get to the quarterback and get sacks. We don't sit there and asterisk those and say, well, that's because Montez Sweat arrived. That's how this works. It's a team. So Steve McMichael was a huge huge part of that and of course even the Steve Michael post career not that that matters for the Hall of Fame but I mean the personality and the wrestling and the WCW and everything else he did to me just plays into that persona of Mongo and who Steve McMichael was this guy loved life had a lot of fun and just just a larger than life personality and in the 85 Bears where you had so many big personalities and Mongo rose above all of them and just kind of tells you the type of person, type of guy he was. And, and he absolutely deserves this. Very excited that Steve Michael's going to get in. Julius Peppers, be shocking if he was not a first ballot Hall of Famer. Just an elite player, just double-digit sacks year after year after year, and an athlete. Oh, my God, was Julius Peppers an athlete. Yeah, you know, I don't know how much Julius Peppers, if there are just highlight packages on YouTube, but if there are, check him out. I mean, this guy ran like a gazelle with the strength of an elephant and, and was just t so tall at the line of scrimmage, could just bat down balls no, no matter how, what, how much loft the quarterback put on him. He was a load and only with the Bears for, for four seasons. And, and I said this to Ron Rivera, and I'm going to bring it up to Jack Silverstein as well. It sounds crazy to say that a what I believe to be a first ballot Hall of Famer is underappreciated, but I think he is because I think he is one of the great defensive ends that we've seen in terms of the talent and the athleticism and how he played and his impact and the big plays because, I mean, this guy had defensive back speed, wide receiver speed. He could catch just about anyone from behind. He was all over the field. There was no way to contain him. Even if you double teamed him because of his height and his length, he was still, a, you couldn't throw the ball in his direction. He would bat the ball down. He was so good. So good. And yes, he was only with the Bears for a few years. He is in essence a Carolina Panther, but he did have significant years with the Chicago Bears and was part of the later Lovey Smith years. And 
I'm a fan of Julius Peppers. I expect him to get in. I don't think there's, like I said, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on his numbers, but Julius Peppers is going to get into the Hall of Fame. So that's two Chicago Bears. And that brings us to the third Chicago Bear, and that is Devin Hester. And I feel good about Devin Hester this year. I really do. I think this is a good opportunity for him. A little bit of a lull, you know, not a ton of first ballot candidates. There's been a couple, you know, previous classes that just, it was going to be tough for him to, to get in with how many first ballot guys that they wanted to get through. But at the same time, there's a lot of first ballot guys coming up here as well behind him. So this is really a good year for, for Hester to get in. And to me, and I brought this up when I was on Football Night in Chicago on NBC, like he's a specialist, yes. So he's limited in how he touches the, the football. But when you're so impactful at what you do, that makes you a Hall of Famer. Ray Guy is in the Hall of Fame because Ray Guy is considered by most to be the greatest punter of all time. So he goes in. Okay, fine. Kickers are in the Hall of Fame. You know, Jan Stenerud is in the Hall of Fame. Adam Vinatieri is going to go in into the Hall of Fame. Like, all right, so we're and we're already here. Justin Tucker is going to go into the Hall of Fame. Okay, so kickers go into the Hall of Fame. Punters go into the Hall of Fame. Returners need to go in the Hall of Fame. And Devin Hester is the greatest returner of all time. I don't care what people want to say about him. And, and the worst argument is, well, he failed at cornerback. He wasn't a good receiver. So how can we put a guy in the Hall of Fame that didn't succeed at other positions? All right. So Mariano Rivera failed as a starting pitcher. Does that not mean that the greatest closer of all time shouldn't be in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Tim Wakefield, not that he's a Hall of Famer, but Tim Wakefield failed as a shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates, figured out how to throw a knuckleball and had a 15, 20-year career, whatever it was, as a pitcher. Does that make Tim Wakefield any less of a pitcher because he failed at shortstop? Dale Murphy failed at catcher, then went in, you know, played right field for the Atlanta Braves for 15 years and hit almost 500 home runs. Doesn't make him any less of a player. I don't understand how... We're going to take that away from Devin Hester because he was so good at one thing, but he wasn't good enough at, at enough things that that doesn't make any sense to me. He's got the most return touchdowns in NFL history. And to put that in, in perspective, that he passed Deion Sanders, but Deion Sanders is punt returns, kick returns, and interceptions. One thing that you completely eliminate from Devin Hester, and he still has more touchdowns. He was so explosive. Other teams were terrified of a returner. They kicked the ball out of bounds. They punted the ball out of bounds. They, they, they didn't care if they had touchbacks. They did not want him to touch the football. They didn't even want him to field it at the seven-yard line. That wasn't enough. They'd much rather have a touchback than give Devin Hester any kind of opportunity to have the football. Tony Dungy kicked the ball. You know, he wasn't sure what he was going to do. He's always told the story. His, his priest or his pastor or whatever told him to just believe in himself and his team, so he decides to kick to Devin Hester. He kicks, the, you know, the open Super Bowl opening kick for a touchdown. Devin Hester doesn't get to touch the ball basically the rest of the game. Like, he, he had such an impact. And when you look at that Bears team that made the Super Bowl, that offense, and I know Rex had a couple good games early in the season, but we know how limited that offense was. That offense was a ball control offense with Thomas Jones. Like, we, we knew what they needed to do. So this was not an offense that was going to go 10 plays, 80 yards. This was an offense that could 
gain you 30 or 40 yards, and that would might get you in field goal range. But if Devin Hester has already crossed midfield and got you to the 40, well, then you're at least a first and goal, and you got a shot. So he helped that offense immensely in that Super Bowl year and in consequent years. He was so impactful. And I don't care if we limit him as just a returner. He needs to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. His impact is incredible. And Ron Rivera talked about like points per touch and how much he scored with how little he had the ball. And that that is even a bigger credit to him. So for me, when I look at this, I look at Devin Hester as a hugely impactful special teams player who needs to be in the Hall of Fame. And I think my prediction is this is the year for Devin Hester. I think the Chicago Bears are going to get all three of these guys on the Hall of Fame. And I think Devin Hester will be there. And that is going to be really exciting for Chicago Bears fans. I cannot wait. Three Bears in one class? How fun would that be? So I am really, really excited for the prospect of Devin Hester going to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I have a couple other things to discuss, but I'm seeing it's going to tie into a couple mailbag questions. So I'm going to talk about those and maybe at more length after I get to Jack Silverstein because I I want to already gone on here 25 minutes. I want to make sure we get Jack on. So Jack Silverstein is next. Bears banter, Bill Zimmerman. I'll be right back. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back into the podcast. Excited for this guest. We did this last year, and he and I talk plenty off screen, talking football history, NFL history, Bears history, and we got to do some Hall of Fame. I did it a little bit with Ron Rivera a couple weeks ago. I highly recommend, if you're a history guy, to go check out Ron's thoughts because Ron Rivera played with Steve McMichael, was the defensive coordinator with Devin Hester, and was the head coach in Carolina with Julius Peppers, the three Chicago Bears that are up for the Hall of Fame this year. But to get a little bit more in-depth with them, we're going to talk to Jack Silverstein. I'm sure most of you follow him already. It's at Reed Jack on the Twixter machine. He's also uh, got a 1990s Bulls newsletter, readjack.substack.com. And that is, you can get that, you can subscribe for the low, low cost of a Scotty Pippen a year or a John Paxson a month. And Jack joins me now. Jack, Bill Zimmerman, how you doing? Hey, I'm well, Bill. How are you? I'm doing very good. I'm excited because not, not only can we talk some Hall of Fame here, usually with the Bears, there's one guy up there, maybe two. We've actually got three guys. I know Julius Peppers didn't have a long Bears career, but he was here. He did have some impactful seasons. But I want to go back in the time machine a little bit and start with Steve McMichael because yeah. I know he's a guy that you were fighting for for years to try and get attention to him in the senior committee with some of the impact he had on that 85 bears and he was i think for chicagoans he was a big face of that team because he was mongo and he had the big personality and he was doing local media 
But from a national perspective, I think Dent got the, the you know, you heard about Richard Dent, you heard about Mike Singletary, they were getting the headlines, Dan Hampton some, even, they're not Hall of Fame caliber guys, but Otis Wilson and, and Wilbur Marshall were flashy, flashy guys. McMichael, didn't, you didn't hear as much about Steve McMichael, and, and that was, I think, a shame from a national perspective. So what was it about Steve McMichael for you where you really we're just like the, the, the committee is missing the boat on him. He is not getting enough attention. So I was behind on McMichael. I think the guys who, who hit me more to McMichael were, um, were, were our colleague Lester, Will Fong, uh, ECW, um, maybe, maybe Jeff Berkus and Rick Tellender. I think those guys for me were, were way ahead. Of me and now now mongo's greatness came up when we did our top 100 bears list and we did one at windy city gridiron the tribune did one and the bears did one and all three of those had mcmichael as the number four defensive lineman uh in bears history behind atkins hampton and dent and all in the top 25 of of bears so i would i don't remember where i put him I was behind um, because I think growing up, I was always thinking a lot more about his personality, his persona, and I was thinking probably more about Dent, Hamp, um, Singletary, Wilbur Marshall. I, I was a big Dave Dewerson guy, so I, I was I was off a little bit on on Mongo, and it wasn't until uh, a couple of years ago where uh, Tallender had written a column in favor of him. I think Lester maybe had gone to bat for him. And so I started looking at his numbers and I started digging into his case and saying, okay, now there's a lot of conversation um, about Mongo and what does it look like to me? So I started digging into his case and I was blown away. I mean, the big number that jumped out at me was that over an 11 year period that, you know, the bulk of his career, Steve McMichael averaged more sacks than all of the defensive tackles on the AP all pro team. So if you take all the defensive tackles and look, some of them, some of them are nose tackles. They're not going to be big sack guys, but some of them, some of them uh, were absolutely pass rushers. And I'm saying in his time, it was, I think it was from 84 to 93, I think was the timeline. And it was amazing. I mean, he out sacked, the entire all pro defensive tackles and guys who were beating him out for defensive tackle. It was also weird that there were three seasons where he was double digits in sacks and was not named all pro. And I don't know if that was maybe a feeling that, well, that's not a job of a defensive tackle. I don't know. But like when we look at it now, we're just like, he had these massive seasons. He had, all these seasons with eight or more sacks. And I think eight is a real good number where, yeah, there, there might be reasons why you have fewer as an interior defensive lineman, but there, then we've seen guys like John Randall and Aaron Donald who are explosive up the middle and are having huge sack numbers, 12, 13, 15. So eight to me is a good number. And he was consistently hitting eight sacks. Um, so I, I looked at that and I, I put a piece together and it kind of just grew from there where I was just realizing, boy, his case is a lot better. And I, I wanted to be on board just for football reasons because it had definitely, his case had cropped up because of ALS and that brought an urgency to it and brought a new attention to it. But 
you know, I wanted to just see what it looked like on football reasons and, and here are the numbers from 83 until not so 83 to 93. Uh, so the first season McMichael was a starter until his final season with the bears, the average associated press, all pro defensive tackle had 7.8 sacks per year. And McMichael had 8.2 sacks per year. He's also tied for third in NFL history for the most eight sack seasons for a defensive tackle. It's Alan Page had 11, Alex Karras had eight, and then Randall and Steve McMichael had seven. You start looking at his numbers like that and, and, and 95 sacks as a defensive tackle and always as a defensive tackle. I mean, Hampton was outside and inside, you know, famously inside first and, and then moved outside. Um, Dent pretty much was outside. You've got other guys like Reggie White was a defensive ta- uh, end who played some tackle. J.J. Watt was a defensive end right. who played some tackle. But Steve McMichael, 95 sacks from the middle of a defense. That really changed the way that I looked at him. That that opened my eyes to the rest of his case. And, it, you know, I just kept digging. And obviously uh, the voters – felt the same way and and here we are yeah and I, I i do wonder you know and i don't know this for certain because i, I was a kid in the 1980s and i enjoyed yeah. mcmichael and watched mcmichael but in terms of really knowing football in terms of what analysts were looking at and teams were looking at but you know we, we talk about so much in today's game about the interior pressure and collapsing the pocket and how important that was and ron rivera brought it up in my interview about how good he was at collapsing the pocket keeping quarterbacks further back and giving Denton Hampton on the outside lanes to get to the quarterback and how important McMichael was for that. And yet he was still able to get, get home on his own and get those sacks. And I, I do wonder if maybe that wasn't the same thought process as, as it was. And the other detractors you heard about McMichael was, well, he's with Denton Hampton and Singletary. So he wasn't a focal point, but I sit there and go, you know, Deacon Jones and, you know, Merlin Olson on the fearsome foursome, we don't take away from Deacon Jones because Merlin Olson was on the other side. We don't take away from Alan Page, Carl Eller, Jim Marshall, because they all got to play together with the Purple People Eaters. If you're among greatness, you're among greatness. That shouldn't be a detraction for it. And when you just look at what McMichael, not just what he was able to accomplish for a few years, but the longevity, like you're talking about 10, 11 year stretches where this guy's averaging over eight sacks a game from the interior. I mean, this is a case that definitely fell through the cracks and got pushed aside. And, you know, unfortunately, maybe it was ALS that that kind of brought up his case again. And, you know, it's amazing that Steve's such a fighter that he's still here today with us and on the cusp of, of hearing his name for the Hall of Fame. But this is a case that stands on its own. This is not a, well, let's do this for, for, for Mongo because he has ALS. This is a case of a guy who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame and just took way too long to get the recognition. Yeah, well, this brings up a, a, an issue that I've talked about and that I'm not alone in this, um, that a lot of people talked about, which is the challenge of getting names into the room. Right. When when you can't get people into the room to be discussed, you're you're always going to leave people behind. It's not just McMichael. Our our Powell was was never uh, a finalist as a modern era uh, candidate. He's he's now about to go into Canton. Um, Joe Klecko was never a finalist. He was elected as a senior last year. Ken Riley was never a finalist. He was elected as a senior last year. So it, we're, we see it a lot, and there are people right now. You know, Richmond Webb, 
has never been a semifinalist, much less a finalist. I heard Richmond, you mention that on CGO. I did not realize that. And that is, that's remarkable. He was, he was just a dominant offensive lineman. He was the best. In his he defined, he defined the position. Yeah. He's, ne he's never, he's never been there. Sterling Sharp, who, who was the clear cut second best wide receiver of his time behind Jerry Rice. He was never there. Now he but had a shorter, put, but if you're going to put Terrell career, Davis and Gail Sears in, you, you've sure. got to look at Sterling Sharp. Sure, there are there are a number of other there are a number of other players. Um, you know, we just passed uh, Tim McDonald over. Tim McDonald, safety for the Cardinals and the 49ers. He checks all the boxes. He won a ring. He was a multi-time All-Pro. He had more All-Pro selections with the NEA, which is the players' choices. Um, you know, he, like I said, won a championship, could do everything. He, his stats are above recent safeties who have got in John Lynch, Steve Atwater. So where's Tim McDonald? Well, now he's off to the senior pool. Leslie O'Neill, who had a great career. Uh, is he a hall of famer? He should be debated. And that's right. what happens. That's what happened now with Steve McMichael. And there are people who look at this. What I don't want to happen with Steve McMichael is for people to say, oh, well, this is just um, this is just ALS. This is just a, you know, a mercy vote. Um, I understand the frustration of fans of Lester Hayes, Elsie Greenwood, Bob Kuchenberg, for a long time, Randy Gratishar, for a long time, Chuck Howley. Great, great players who either were ignored for a long time or were finalists for many years and never, and never elected. And now it's like, well, Steve McMichael just pops up out of nowhere. Yes, but that is partially the result of never being in the room in the first place so when you're stuck on all these seniors you can't figure out a way to explain their case in new terms what more can you say about lester hayes like he's either in or he's not what more can you say about bob kuchenberg he's either in or he's not well here comes steve mcmichael and art powell their cases have never been heard and that's working in their favor now because now their cases are fresh and voters say, oh, you know what? Wow, I didn't know that Steve McMichael outsacked the, the the AP defensive tackles of his era. Never mind. Maybe I should be looking over here. So it, it's definitely something that I think that the Hall needs to find a way to figure it out. And to me, and it's other people have brought it up. Ira Kaufman's brought it up. Clark Judge has brought it up. Um, Rick Gosselin's brought it up. The, the way to do that is to have a non-voting meeting. Untether the act of a formal discussion from the label of finalist, because when you only discuss people once they're called finalists, then you run the risk of insulting them. Well, they were a finalist and now they've dropped out, but that's what you should be doing. You should be evaluating people without the concern of, well, we labeled you a finalist and now everybody in the media and all the fans know you were a finalist, but now you're, you're not good enough. And, and now that's a complaint. Get more people in the room, have a non-voting meeting in june july i mean find a way to make it happen there, there, there's been complaints from voters well we can't discuss everyone there were 173 modern era nominees yeah but look at that list you don't need to discuss all those people right like voters know why that list was so big and they know that some of those people are not legitimate possible hall of famers yeah there's so to say like people you can eliminate in a 30 second in 30 seconds so to sit here and say <laughs> oh well we can't meet uh, because there's too many names. Come on, man. Come on. You you cover football for your entire life. You cover football right now. You can't look at that list and figure out who needs to be discussed and who doesn't. That come on.
That's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I completely agree. There's they could definitely do have a better approach to to seniors and and hopefully and they're they're improving it and I appreciate that. But there are some I think real basic obvious fixes where you need there there no no process that leaves Richmond Webb out of the conversation now for 17 years going on 18 soon right. to be 20. That's a failed process. Yeah. Yeah, if he's not part of the conversation, I agree. Then there's something something wrong with how you're getting to your solution. So right. let, let, let's move on to Julius Peppers. I don't want to spend too much time on him. I want to spend more time on Devin Hester. But Julius Peppers, and the one thing I tell people, if you want to truly appreciate Julius Peppers, if you're 21, 22 years old, so you were a kid, you don't really remember Peppers that well, peak Julius Peppers, because I think he's underappreciated. I, I, he's, I think he's first ballot Hall of Famer. But I think he's actually underappreciated with how good he was because I, I, I don't hear people talking about him, I think, the way they should. But if you can find old North Carolina basketball games, right. Julius Peppers right. played it, that helps you understand how gifted of an athlete this guy was. He was 280 pounds and playing two feet above the rim. Like he was a remarkable, remarkable athlete. And it translated to the football field. And because of that, what he was able to do on the field was so unique compared to any of his peers. Yeah. I, I think, I think one mark of a hall of famer is how long can you make their case without mentioning any numbers? And like you can, that. And and you can make Julius Pepper's case for a long time just describing what you saw. The the speed off the edge mixed with the size. He could play inside, he could play outside, and he did both. Then he went to Green Bay in a 3-4, and now he's lining up off the line as an outside linebacker. So he's, he's, he's a defensive end, he's a defensive tackle, he's an outside linebacker. Um, obviously, he's got the sacks, but what I think about are the big plays – the athleticism to, I mean, I remember he had one play, uh, I think it was 2010, because I think it was his first year on the Bears. We played Carolina that year, and he had a play where it was the type of play you saw Erlocker make, but Erlocker's already running around in space. Peppers is on, you know, got one hand on the turf. Uh, there's a pass. He batted, the, he reached up, he batted the ball up. And then it went behind him and he turned and then dove and made the interception. I mean, any other player, how many other defensive ends bat that ball? Not many. How many actually then have a chance at the interception? Fewer still. How many make the interception and finish the play? Not, you know, I mean, Peppers. You can count them on one hand, maybe one finger. Yeah, maybe one (laughs) finger, right. Peppers, I would say J.J. Watt. That's a J.J. Watt play. Um, not, not many. Then I think about the speed that he had. I think about the play he made in 2013 against the Steelers, uh, running back. It was either a real short interception or it was a fumble near the line, but the speed that he had to run those back, some of the yeah, speed he had, plays, he had defensive back speed, he had defensive back speed. I mean, I'm looking, I'm looking at his pro football reference and like, his rookie year, his long takeaway was 21 yards. His third year, his long was 97 yards on an interception, 60 <laughs> yards on a fumble return. If, then you go down to 2014. Now he's 34 with the Packers. He had um, a 52-yard interception return, but he only had two interceptions that year. He ran it back 101 yards. So the other one was a beast too. He scored on both. 
Um, I mean, then you look at like he had 12 sacks his rookie year. He had 11 sacks his second to last year. I mean, you cut these numbers anyway. 18 tackles for loss in 2006. 14 and a half sacks in 2008. You know, it's just (laughs) any way that you look at these numbers, you don't even have to go to like the career numbers as great as they are. But I mean, you know, you got Jared Allen right now as a finalist. Jared Allen's a hell of a player. Julius Peppers had almost 20 more sacks yeah, that, that, than, yeah, than, than, than Jared Allen. I mean, you look at the, the forced fumbles. He had, a four, he had at least one forced fumble every year of his career. He had five in, let's see, one, two, three seasons. He had four in 2004. Again, look at what he was doing in 2014 with the Packers. And remember how close they came. I remember looking at him at the end of that NFC Championship game when Green Bay – disintegrated and and not not for anything that peppers was doing wrong and i just remember thinking like man this guy of all these guys man this guy even as a packer boy he did he belonged back in a super bowl he belonged having another shot at a ring just that was a shame but i mean you look at like 2014 at 34 years old 16 starts two interceptions returned for 101 yards both were touchdowns Four forced fumbles, three fumble recoveries, um, seventeen quarterback hits. I mean, yeah, incredible, ridiculous. And again, and that, and he's doing that in a new position technically because he's doing that in a three-four. So you, it, it, you can you can talk about Julius Peppers for a long time before you get to career numbers, and that is a huge distinguishing factor for me, especially on this ballot where a lot of what you know. A lot of what these some of these wide receivers bring to the table is their career numbers. A lot of what some of these, you know, Jared Allen is, is a lot about career numbers. Jared Allen, to me, was the second best defensive lineman on, on the Vikings after Kevin Williams, who, by the way, also has not been a semifinalist yet. So Jared Allen, is he's a Hall of Famer for sure, but you have to really get into his career numbers to make the case. You can just make the case on Julius Peppers with – the things you remember, the things that he – watching him, how you felt, and um, that's that's something special. So I'll be excited. Jared Allen, by the way, another expert, so give us four. That's true. That's true. Jared Allen did have a cup of coffee over here. All right. Well, you know, I, I know I could talk to you for 90 minutes, but we're trying to try and keep this to a reasonable time here. So let, let's move on. Let's move over to Devin Hester, and I think this is the guy that Bears fans love to talk about the most. Not that they don't love McMichael or, or Peppers – but Hester was so explosive and so exciting. And the idea of a return specialist being a Hall of Famer did not exist before Devin Hester came into the league. They, they would just, you know, and not that guys like Brian Mitchell and, and got, you know, Mel Gray and, and, you know, White Shoes Johnson and these, these great returners. Not that they weren't great, but it was just, oh, they're a returner. And it was they were just pushed aside immediately. There wasn't even a thought. It's like punting. And, and Ray Guy finally got recognition, you know, quite a few years ago. But th- this idea didn't exist. And then we started looking at Devin Hester and going, but he impacts a game so much. And and I like what Ron Rivera told me about Devin Hester is, and, and not that they, we can quantify this. I mean, I'm sure you could if someone went through and looked at everything. But the amount of points per touch that yep. Devin Hester had compared to, you know, some a guy like Jerry Rice that's got, you know, obscene numbers and is, is probably the GOAT of any football player of all time. But, you know, Jerry Rice had so many opportunities, and Hester's opportunities were so limited in the return game, and he's still just explosive plays and 
even if he didn't score, got the offense basically in field goal range to start on so many occasions that a Rex Grossman offense desperately needed in those years of that Lovey Smith team. So exactly. the amount of impact he had on the game and, and the amount of fear that he put in opposing coaches. I mean, the Tony Dungy comments he's made about the Super Bowl, you could talk about forever. Right. What his impact on the game is undeniable. And he is, you know, it's fine that he wasn't a first ballot Hall of Famer, but I don't want Devin Hester to wait any longer because I there's a lot of names coming down the pipeline that could yeah. make it more difficult. I'm really hoping this is the year Devin Hester gets his name heard. Yeah, I think that uh, you put it perfectly, Bill. And again, Devin Hester is someone who you can explain his greatness before you get to any numbers. Um, you, you, and, and his numbers are otherworldly. But I, I wrote a piece for Windy City Gridiron called The Impossible Task of Kicking. I think it was called The Impossible Task of Kicking Away from Devin Hester. And it just looked at four ways that Devin Hester impacted games when the ball was not in his hands. You had teams kicking out of bounds on kickoffs. On kickoffs, absolutely. The Dallas Cowboys, week three, 2007, Hester's second season. They kicked the opening kickoff out of bounds, and John Madden and Al Michaels on the broadcast compliment the coaching decision. <laughs> yeah, you had take Rod, it at the 40. You yeah. had Rod Marinelli telling his players when he was a coach of the Lions, punted into Lake Michigan. You had players doing all sorts of tricky things, um, and then the Bears would do their own. Dave Tobe would do his own tricky things where he'd put Rasheed Davis high, and you had plays where, yeah, Rasheed Davis, who was a hell of a kick returner himself, he gets the ball as the up man, and it's a short, short, I'm putting that in quotes, short return, 19 yards, and it's at midfield. Devin Hester didn't touch the ball in that play. No player... And the return game was able to have that impact where he didn't even need the ball in his hands. I, in, in 2012, Devin Esther didn't have a return touchdown. And late into December, I haven't checked the final stat, but late into December, the Bears were still leading the NFL in average starting field position. And, and Devin didn't have a touchdown. Now, that Bears defense was also getting a lot of takeaways. But all the touchdowns that they got, those don't count toward right. – take towards field position because there's there's no field position there so i mean a lot of it was what we could do in the return game and what Devin could do you know a lot of people like to say that well they changed the rules because of hester so that actually isn't true they the, the the kickoff rule wasn't changed because of hester and remember he wasn't even returning kicks at that point because they had given it to to daniel manning but in all the original reporting when they made that kickoff change, the number one name that came up it from reporters and from players and coaches was Devin Hester, even though he wasn't even the Bears' full-time kick returner at that point. He was just so dangerous. Um, I look at Devin Hester, and I see that combination of kick and punt, which Brian Mitchell has talked about. Brian Mitchell said, you know, these are two different jobs. And, you know, a kick returner has just got to be sturdy, speed breakaway speed but sturdiness and a punt returner has to be vision and shiftiness and and i mean really those two things and and that's why you see that that disparity in a lot of stats rick upchurch eight punt return touchdowns in his career zero kick return touchdowns leon washington eight kick return touchdowns in his career zero punt return touchdowns cordero patterson the all-time leader in kick return touchdowns with nine. Can't return punts. He has fewer punt return yards 
then Devin Hester has punt return touchdowns. <laughs> so Devin Hester changes individual games. He changed the way that teams coached. He changed the way that teams drafted. Um, you look at Super Bowl 41. That is a game with a first ballot Hall of Fame middle linebacker at his peak. That is a game with a, a perennial all perennial Pro Bowl outside linebacker at his peak. That is a game with Thomas Jones, the first Bears running back at the time to rush for 1,300 yards other than Walter Payton. That is a game with a quarterback who had his difficulties, to say the least. And the one guy who they focused on to take out of the game was Devin Hester. Now you look at Desmond Howard. Desmond Howard in 1996 had one of the great return seasons of all time. He led the NFL in punt return yards, punt returns, punt return average, and punt return touchdowns. He also had a punt return touchdown in the playoffs, and he had been killing the Patriots in that Super Bowl. Right. And they score uh, in the third quarter to get it to six points. And what do they do? They kick straight down the middle to Desmond Howard. They didn't take him out of the game. Yeah, they didn't, true. you know, they didn't think, oh, maybe we shouldn't kick it to this guy who's been killing people. Interesting, interesting note about that Desmond Howard kick return touchdown. That is the only kick return touchdown of Desmond Howard's career. I didn't realize that. So the number of players who can actually do both, Mel Gray, Brian Mitchell, Dante Hall, Gail Sayers, Deion Sanders, Devin Hester, it, it's it's not a lot. Josh Cribbs, I'll give him due, but there are a lot of guys who were making all decade or making all pro because they could do one or the other. And, right. and, and Devin did it both. And Devin did it all the way from his rookie year to his final game. His first game of his career scores his first career touchdown on a return against the Packers. His last game of his career, he set a, his personal best, his career high in kick return yards uh, with 194. I think it was his postseason high. And there was an 80-yard punt return that was called back on a hold, which would have given Devin Hester the NFL record for most return yards in a playoff game. He did it in his final game. He did it with Seattle. Right. His kick return yardage in that game was more than the career high of playoff kick return yardage for the last five players who had been named all-decade kick returner first team. Yeah, no, it's 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 remarkable, and, and, and you do a great job of putting the numbers in perspective. And the one thing that I hear people bring up, and I hate it, and I'm going to use baseball as a comparison, is, well, Devin Hester couldn't do anything else. Well, first of all, if that's all he was ever asked to do, that's all that matters. But, you know, oh, well, they, they wanted him to play cornerback, and he couldn't play cornerback. And then they tried him at receiver, and he wasn't that good at receiver. Well, when I look at baseball, Mariano Rivera was a failed starter and then became a closer and became the greatest closer of all time. Totally. You, you, further, like Tim Wakefield was a failed, and I'm not that he's a Hall of Famer, but Tim Wakefield was a failed shortstop and then mastered the knuckleball and had a 20-year career as a pitcher. Dale Murphy was a failed catcher, and they moved him to right field. You go on and on about guys that failed at positions, found their way in a different way in their sport, and, and had great success. So I don't care if Devin Hester couldn't play cornerback at the NFL level when what he could do in a return game was so unique that he is literally the only one that has done it at that level. And I understand Brian Mitchell and some of these other guys, but no one had an impact and no one could scare teams like Devin. Yeah, and the the the, the fear factor there is is so important. I mean, people were 
game planning for a returner and fans were planning their bathroom breaks around <laughs> around a returner and you know people like to talk about um people like to talk about snap counts and that was actually we know from uh we know from uh, uh dan pompey last year that that was where that was where the the conversation broke down in in hester's second year was there was all this pushback on snap counts well if you look at the percentage of yards versus the percentage of touches that Devin had compared to his offensive teammates, it was monumental. And yeah, people will say, well, of course, I mean, returners, they're always going to average, you know, they're going to average like 20 yards on a kick return and maybe a bad punt returner is maybe going to average eight yards on a punt return and, and no running back is going to average eight yards a carry, but like, okay. So why are we just dismissing that? Why are we dismissing the ability of a great returner to give you, you know, instead of a fifth of the field, a quarter of the field? Why are we dismissing the impact of a great returner to give you 12, 13 yards on a punt return and flip the field and get you close to field goal range? This is, this is um, 2006, a year, obviously, we went to the Super Bowl, and obviously, we had some offensive challenges, and we needed every single yard. Devin Hester did not touch the ball on on defense or offense in 2006 only on only on returns thomas jones had 35 percent of our touches devin hester had seven percent of our touches thomas jones had led the led the team with 17.5 percent of our yards devin hester was second with 15.9 percent of our yards that's crazy then you fast forward to 2013 when devin hester again went back to only he, he didn't have any snaps on offense he didn't obviously have any snaps on defense. And let's see, where is it? Um, that year obviously was a huge Matt Forte year. Matt Forte had, let's see, 39%. No, wait, hold on. Sorry, I want to get this because this is good. All right. um, let's see, here it is. Matt Forte had 36% of the touches Oh, this is over 08 to 13. So when they were teammates, Matt Forte had 36% of the Bears touches and 21% of the yards. Devin Hester had 10.6% of the touches and 19% of the yards. Wow. So he was right behind Forte, and he was he was ahead of Brandon Marshall and Alshon Jeffrey in 2013. I'm losing it now um, where exactly it is. But the the percentage of yardage and the fact that, you know, you can take the ball out of his hands by punting out of bounds. You can take the ball out of his hands by kicking it short. But when he actually has the ball in his hands, the yardage that he's gaining was, was massive. So the, the fact that he's gotten this far is already amazing. Um, he, he needs to go in. I'm hoping that voters put him in. Um, I agree. I think he could have been a first ballot Hall of Famer, but really because of that ballot, the year he was first ballot, um, it was it – was, that that class was Baselli, Leroy Butler, um, Richard Seymour, Sam Mills, and Brian Young. So so no one who sniffed a first or second ballot induction. Sam Mills was on his twentieth year. In that type of year, I think you could have justified Devin going in in a year like the other, like when there was uh, Peyton and Charles Woodson and Calvin Johnson all in the same year as first ballot. No, then you don't. That, that but, was the, yeah, was, somehow I was thinking that was his first year. Yeah. Yeah, but. Um, 
yeah, all right, you're not going to put a, a, a returner in first ballot versus a first ballot every down player who was the best of the best of the best. But right now we're looking at wide receivers who are the sixth, seventh, eighth best of their era. We're looking at defensive ends who are the third, fourth, fifth best of their era. We're looking at Devin Hester, who is the undisputed greatest ever at a position that is older than the NFL. Yeah, that's true. They're and the people who are support, doing that. <laughs> and the people who support him most are the other people who have already lost out on the respect and ability to go to Canton. Dante Hall, Mel Gray, Brian Mitchell, Gail Sayers before he passed away said that Devin Hester belonged. Deion Sanders has said that Devin Hester is the greatest ever. So that the people who are most in his corner are potentially the ones with the most to lose because they're getting ignored because they're just returners. So it's got to be Devin this year. Uh, as I as I wrote a few years ago, Devin is a lock based on historical trends to get in by 2027 because all first ballot finalists have gotten in within six years in the semifinal era. But it needs to be sooner. It needs to be this year. And if it if it turns out that it's not this year, it needs to be next year. I don't care who's coming on the ballot. It is time. Devin Pester. All right. Last thing for you, and then I'll let you go. Let's do a little prediction here. I think we both agree Steve McMichael's a rubber stamp. He is in. The seniors I mean, are in. Yeah, the seniors like, are in, and the and and Buddy Parker is the coach. He's in. These guys are all in because if they voted against them, it, it is a huge problem for their process. It's going to lead to infighting and all sorts of questions about the seniors are in, and Buddy yeah. Parker is in. So, so McMichael's going to be in. Julius Peppers, it's almost impossible to imagine him not being a first ballot Hall of Famer. I'd be stunned if Julius Peppers wasn't. So let me get you this then. Final prediction, Devin Hester. Do I know you say you want him in this year. Do you think Devin Hester is in the Hall of Fame this year? I suspect he's not for a few reasons. Number one, last year they were still debating snap counts. Snap counts is the lowest possible bar for a returner. It's sort of – it's pretty silly. So if you're still debating snap counts in year two. I feel like you might need another year or two to, to push that vending machine over, you know, like you. that, that, that might be tricky. You, you know, pepper, I, I'm pretty confident peppers is going in. They're going to, they're going to elect at least one wide receiver. They're going to lean heavily on probably on gates. So that's three. Um, they could go back to and, and get a second re- wide receiver or they could get a second wide receiver, leave Gates a year, but they just elevated Jared Allen last year over Hester. Um, Patrick Willis has been waiting for a really long time now. Uh, You could have some wild cards. Eric Allen was in his first time as a finalist. Now Darren Woodson is getting a little long in the tooth as a finalist, uh, as a modern era guy. Uh, My... uh, the one thing that Hester has going has against him is also what he has going for him, which is that he's the only specialist. So he doesn't have to – you don't have to, like, knock anybody out. You don't have to, like, debate, like, him versus Mel Gray or Brian Mitchell. Um, and he's the only full-time bear. Uh, is there going to be some sort of backlash because they go, all right, well, Mongo's in. But we, we've seen them. They like to pair – you know, they paired up Klecko and Revis – they paired up Ware and Howley. So I don't know. I don't know how you handicap that. But my guess, if I had to guess, would be that he's not in. And my guess on the class would be uh, Peppers, Andre Johnson, Antonio Gates, uh, Jared Allen, and Patrick Willis. But Devin would be right there as a, as a wild card. He could definitely get in. And, um, 
and I know, and I know that that Dan went super hard and and, and made a great case for him uh, as he does all of our bears. So uh, if I had to guess, I would bet that Devin's got one more year. That would be <laughs> well, my guess. All right. Well, I hope you're wrong, as all Bears fans do, because we'd love to see Devin get his Definitely. name called and get that bust in Canton. So there he is, at Reed Jack on Twitter, the, the best Chicago sports historian you'll find. And make sure you subscribe to that 90s Bulls newsletter, readjack.substack.com. Jack, yeah. thanks for so much time. Really appreciate it. And we will be finding out here in just a few days uh, who that class is. February 8th, we find out um, if, if things don't leak sooner. But, you know, they've done – even though they extended this – so you, they used to vote the day before the Super Bowl, and so there was much less chance of a leak. Now they've got it weeks out, and they've done a pretty good job of containing leaks. So that's been impressive. My 90s Bulls newsletter is driving toward my 90s Bulls book, Six Rings. It'll be the first comprehensive book on the 90s Bulls. Incredibly, no such book exists. This will be the first. That is incredible. Yeah. That, that'll be a must read. Jack, thanks so much. Thanks, Bill. All right, there he is. Jack Silverstein, everybody. That, that's a great spot. Jack knows his stuff. Like I said, if you're not following him on Twitter, you're doing Twitter wrong. At Reed Jack, he, he's got tons on the 90s Bulls. He's got that book coming out, and he is just a Hall of Fame guru with this kind of stuff. So he he's a great follow. Make sure you do that, and we'll see. You know, He doesn't think Devin's going to get in. He knows what he's talking about, but I, I got a good feeling about this. I really do that Devin Hester is going to get in this year. So let, let's move on to the mailbag. And I'm going to address the trade down thing one more time because I'm like a dog with a bone and I can't let it go. And some of you guys on Twitter and the 1D City Gridiron comments are just driving me crazy. So we're going to talk about this here. And I'm going to use Cav Manning here. We're going to start with his question out of the gate. He says, I know people have the Marvin Harrison bug, but what do you believe it would take to be able to move up to three from nine? The dream would be to then get Williams and Harrison I'm thinking Fields is traded and you use what you got for him to be able to trade up and not mortgage the future. All right. So I'm going to combine this question, Cav, with this whole idea of trading down for Marvin Harrison and the Hall and to get the Carolina Panthers Hall again, but be close enough to get Marvin Harrison. All right. I'm going to start. We're going to kind of do this together on the air. We're going to start with the Carolina Panthers trade last year. Okay. If you look up there, you can find it anywhere. I like how this website called Draft Tech, it's Draft, T-E-K, two T's, Draft, T-E-K.com. I still like to use the Jimmy Johnson chart. There are, you know, Jimmy Johnson put together a, a trade value chart of how to look at picks and to, va- to evaluate trades and determine what's fair and what's not in terms of trading future fours and future twos and current ones and all the different things you can do with a trade. So we're going to use this. We're going to break down the Carolina Panthers trade from last year, and then we're going to talk about the you know trading down this year and trading up. So this is going to take a little bit of time before I get to other questions, but I've had this on my mind because we had Courtney Cronin on, right? I put out the tweet that said, you can't get the Hall and Marvin Harrison. It doesn't work. The math doesn't work. And y'all told me I was wrong, and then you'd use Courtney Cronin's article and screenshotted stuff about... The, the haul you could get. So I said, okay, let's have Courtney Cronin on. There's plenty to talk about with Courtney. She's awesome. So let's talk about that with her and let's make sure I bring it up. And Courtney Cronin said, to get the haul, Marvin Harrison will be long gone. You can't get both. She said it. She said it on the podcast. And then in the comments 
I, I put out an article with Courtney's quotes about it, and the comments still said, basically, you're both wrong. No! Marvin Harrison in the hall, and she's telling you, basically, you're misreading it. You need to get down a little bit further. You can't be in the top three still and get the hall. And that's where you need to be to get Marvin Harrison. All right? So she's telling you it's wrong, and now I'm going to show you why it's wrong. So the Carolina Panthers trade last year. All right, if you'll bring up the chart, it gives you the value of the picks. The number one overall pick, 3,000. Number two, 2,600. Number three, 2,200. Then 1,800, 1,700, 1,600, 1,500, 1,400. 1,350 is the ninth pick. 1,300 is the tenth pick. So you can see how much value is lost just going from one to 10, right? And if you look at this, then you'll really see how much value that is. So the Chicago Bears are trading the Carolina Panthers the number one pick, and that's 3,000 points. Now, some people like to use, there's other, the Rich Hill model, and, and Brad Spielberger put together a model. I still like using this one, even though, sure, sometimes it doesn't work out perfectly, but it's pretty darn close. So the Chicago Bears are trading the Carolina Panthers a pick worth 3,000 points. So now what the Bears get in return has to equate to 3,000 points. Okay, so they're getting the ninth pick. That's 1350. You still have 1650 points to make up. Now, DJ Moore, we'll start there. How do you evaluate DJ Moore? You evaluate DJ Moore and try to figure out, well, what would teams give up for DJ Moore? Would a team give up the fourth or fifth pick in the draft for DJ Moore? No, they wouldn't. Would a team in the fifth, you know, with 15, 16, 17, would they trade that for DJ Moore? Maybe but probably not. Would you get a team in the 20s to trade for DJ Moore? The, yes, I think like the Kansas City Chiefs, if you called up Andy Reid and said, we'll give you DJ Moore for the 30th pick in the draft or 31st, 32nd pick in the draft, Andy Reid says, where do I get to sign? Like that's happening, right? He knows he needs a wide receiver. That's his path to a wide receiver. He would do that. So if you start talking about teams in the 20s that would be willing to do that, then you start sitting there going, all right, so how much? How many points is DJ Moore worth? The 20th pick is worth 850. The 31st pick is worth 600. So we're talking somewhere in between. I'm going to say that DJ Moore is worth 750 points. All right? I got DJ Moore at 750 points plus the 1350. That puts us at 2,100 points. We still need 900 more points for this trade to be fair. So the Chicago Bears also received that late second round pick. That late second round pick that turned into Tyreek Stevenson, that's worth about 300 points. So now we still are at 2,400 points. There is still a 600 point deficit. And usually the team that's trading up has to give up a little more, okay? So they still have to give up more than, you know, they don't want to make it equal. The Bears want to win this trade. They say, well, if you want to trade up, we need to win the trade by the points. All right. Now, future picks, everyone evaluates these a little differently, but for the most part, the, the general consensus is for each year in the future, you drop it down around and beyond that, you try and pick from the middle of the round. Now, teams will alter that a little bit. Like if you're trading with the Kansas City Chiefs, 
you're going to say, well, that's not going to be a mid-round pick. That's going to be a late-round pick, and you'll evaluate it from a late-round pick. But for the most part, generally, you consider things a mid-round pick. So we'll save the first-round pick for this year for last. So a second-round pick two years in the future is, in essence, a mid-fourth-round pick. So that's about another 75 points. So that second-round pick was worth 75 points. So that puts you at 24-75. Now, what's interesting about when you evaluate first-round picks, so this first-round pick is a year in advance, so in theory, you're talking about a mid-second-round pick. But because it's a first-round pick, and you expect the Carolina Panthers with a rookie quarterback to be bad, you're going to give it a little more weight. So people have told me a first-round pick doesn't really lose, doesn't go all the way down to a second rounder. It's kind of a tweener. So a top of a second round pick is worth 580. So if we're going to call it a kind of a late first round pick, we're going to talk about it worth being worth maybe about 650 points. So then you add everything up and the Chicago Bears got back about, uh, let's see, so 500, 150, 125, about 3,125 points over 3,000 given to the Carolina Panthers. So the Bears won that trade. But that's the thing. That's how valuable the number one pick is. So when you look at these picks, everyone's like, oh my God, they killed the Panthers in that trade. Now they did because of the fact that Darnell Wright's going to be good. It's this turn into the number one pick this year, Tyreek Stevenson. Like they did a lot of good things. But when you look at it with the charts, it's a pretty fair trade, as crazy as that sounds, because that's how valuable these top picks are. So we bring that up, Cav, to talk about your idea. So before we talk about the trade down, let's talk about Cav's idea. Going from nine to three. So the Bears are at nine, that's 1350. They gotta get up to three, which is 2200. Now I've heard the idea that the Chicago Bears should trade Justin Fields to New England and use that to move from nine to three. Well, the Chicago Bears need to make up 850 points to equal to even out that trade. 850 points is the 20th overall pick. That means Justin Fields' value in that trade is the equivalent of the 20th overall pick. Well, we've heard from plenty of league sources that Justin Fields isn't worth that much. Justin Fields is worth a second round pick. So early, middle, second round, it's worth about 500 points. So if we're doing Justin Fields here, he's worth 500 points, all right? So you still have to come up with 850 points, 500 for Justin, you still have to come up with 350 points. That's a lot of draft capital still. So the Chicago Bears don't currently have a second round pick. And if you're not trading Justin Fields for a second round pick, you're trying to trade up, that means you've got to give up a third round pick. So the Chicago Bears have the 75th overall pick. That's 215 points. 215 points. That gets you not all the way there. They had 850 to make up. That's 715 points. So to move up from nine to three, Cav, you need to trade Justin Fields to, to New England. You need to trade your third round pick this year and you still need 215 points. So what you need to do is probably include your 2025 second round pick because that'll be valued as a mid third round pick, which is about 200 points. So that's roughly what you're looking at. 
for instead of drafting Roma Dunze, you want Marvin Harrison. The, the difference is to go from nine to three is Justin Fields, your third round pick this year and your second round pick next year. That's what you have to do. Is that worth it? That's what you have to ask yourself. Is that much worth it to go from Roma Dunze to Marvin Harrison? To me, it is not. And finally, while we're doing this, let's look at the trade down idea. Chicago Bears have a trip pick worth 3,000 points. We'll go with New England, all right, because at least it's more. So New England, that's 2,200. So for New England to come up, they need to make up 800 points. All right. It would be a lock in this case that the New England Patriots would give up the 34th pick. That's 560 points. Okay. That, again, doesn't get you there. That's 240 more points. New England could also give up the round three pick this year, and that would get you home. So the so the New England Patriots, to move up, could give you the second round pick and third round pick this year. That would be enough. That would cover the points. If they didn't want to give up two picks this year, they could give up their second round pick this year and second round pick next year. That would cover the points. Now, a lot of you say, well, Caleb Williams is special. Well, that's why when I did my top 10 mocks, I added Cole Strange into the mix as well because we know Ryan Poles likes to get veterans if he can. So I did second round pick this year, second round pick next year, and Cole Strange. If you think that's a haul, then that's the haul you get for Marvin Harrison. Could you convince the Patriots to give you a future one? Maybe, because it's a quarterback. But you don't get a second round pick that year. No way. If they give you the number one pick, Maybe you get the number three pick this year and their number one next year. And that's it. You're done. Now, again, you got a first round pick out of it, but you're done. For Washington, that's only 400 points. In theory, if Washington gave you their second round pick this year, that's worth 560 points. I'm sorry, 540 points. That's it. They've covered it and already overpaid. The Caleb Williams tax, maybe there's a future three involved. I did something where the Bears got Ricky Stromberg for that trade down, but that's it. You're not getting this Carolina Panthers Hall and staying in the top three. It's not happening. The NFL is not throwing out decades of, of this to just say a team to suddenly go, here's three first round picks for us to move up two spots. It's not happening. It's not how things work. So please, please, please stop doing this. It is not happening. Let's have debate. Let's discuss this number one pick, but let's not do it in the context of just making things up. And I say, they should draft Caleb Williams. And you say, no, they should keep Justin Fields, draft Marvin Harrison and get three first round picks and, and suddenly build, build a super team. We can't have that debate because you're not grounded in reality. So please, for the life of me, can we stop doing the Marvin Harrison and a haul? It's not an option. It's either or. Marvin Harrison and a couple picks or trade past Marvin Harrison and get the haul. Maybe you can get Malik Neighbors at six and you trade with the Giants. You get Roma Dunze at eight and trade with the Falcons. Get Brock Bowers. There are other very talented players you could get in your haul scenario, but Marvin Harrison is not one of them. All right, let's get to some others here on the mailbag before we wrap up this podcast. Let's go with Jordan Tweets. After filling out a respected veteran staff on the offensive side of the ball, 
How much involvement will Flus have on the offense development of a QB if they draft one? He will be involved. He's the head coach. He has said that he wants to be involved on both sides of the football. So I fully expect Flus to be involved, to build up a relationship with that quarterback and, and to have an impact. Like Matt Eberflus talked to Justin Fields and had the 2-0-0 thing. I didn't love his his 2-0-0 with the touchdowns, turnovers, and sacks thing. I get it, but again, that that takes away Justin Fields, who he is. Justin Fields is aggressive. You don't want to take away Justin Fields' aggressiveness. That's what Matt Eberflus did there. So Matt Eberflus is going to be involved, but at the same time, I think Matt Eberflus is going to trust Shane Waldron, Kerry Joseph, and this offensive staff, and they will handle the bulk of it. He is not going to, you know, tell them they're wrong, Caleb Williams should his footwork should be this way, or he should look at no. That the Shane Waldron and Kerry Joseph are going to develop this rookie quarterback. But Matt Eberflus is absolutely going to be involved. There's no reason to think he wouldn't be. All right. Little John, I know you like Chris Jones and free agency, but I like the defensive tackle rotation as is. Who's the best realistic free agent edge to dream about? All right, well, there's two guys. There's Daniel Hunter, who is going to be a free agent. I don't know if the Vikings are going to do anything with him. He's a little bit older. Not old, but he's a little bit older. He's going to be costly. They're probably not going to franchise tag him. They've already got this Justin Jefferson mess that they're dealing with. They weren't able to extend him. So the Vikings, and they're kind of in a transition period right now. So the Vikings, they got to deal with Kirk Cousins. It's a bit of a mess there. So I think Hunter slips through the cracks and reaches free agency. So do you want to pay? Now, he's going to be more expensive than the other guy I'm going to bring up, and that's Bryce Huff from the New York Jets. Bryce Huff is an excellent pass rushing specialist. He's not necessarily got, now maybe he can stop the run and do some other things. He hasn't gotten much of an opportunity in New York because they're so loaded on the defensive line, he gets limited snaps. But consistently, when you break down the numbers, he makes more of an impact per snap than just about any defensive player in the league. He's way up there in the top five, top 10 in, in those type of numbers when you look at you know pressure rates and, and things like that where it's broken down per snap. Bryce Huff, is probably going to be a guy that's going to have to pay 15 to $17 million a year for. So he is an excellent option, and Hunter would be the other option if you wanted to pay. Because here's, again, the way I look at this. Spend on the defense now, draft a bunch of young talent on offense, draft a quarterback. Your defense is where you have your spend now, and then this offense comes up together and then when this offense is coming up together and you have your pieces in place, right? You've got DJ Moore. You paid DJ Moore, but you got DJ Moore. Then you got a couple more receivers on rookie deals. You got Darnell right on a rookie deal. The quarterback, most importantly, is on a rookie deal. And then when these deals come up, you got to pay, let's say it's Caleb Williams. You got to pay Caleb Williams, 55, 60 million a year. You got to pay, you know, your wide receiver. At this point, you maybe not want DJ Moore anymore. It's four or five years from now. He's 32, 33. Maybe, you know, all those, the the broken tackles, he's starting to break down a little bit. We got to see. We don't know where DJ Moore is going to be. Maybe you pay your rookie receiver. Maybe they have Roma Dunze and he's very good. You want to pay him, you know. Maybe they have Brock Bowers and they want to pay him. And then maybe Cole Komet you let go because Cole Komet's, you know, 28, 29. And you're not sure how much the tight end body has to hold up. So it's all an evolving thing. But you pay the defense now, draft the offense, and while the offense is cheap, you start drafting defensive players to replace your aging, expensive defense. And then, let's if it's Chris Jones or Hunter, after three, four years, you let them go. Montez Sweat, if you re-sign him, 
he becomes a much you know cheaper contract because he's in his early 30s. Maybe Tremaine Edmonds is gone at that point. You know, so again, it's an evolving thing, but I think that's a great way to do it. So for me, I sit here and say, Chris Jones is my guy. I would love to do that with Chris Jones. But if you're going to keep the defensive tackle rotation as it is, then I would say Hunter or Bryce Huff are the two guys to target. All right, Chris Armstrong. I have an opinion, but I really don't know. If Joe Alt somehow dropped to nine, is it worth taking him over a skill position player, a.k.a. the Bengals dilemma? Of course, the Bengals, Bengals dilemma being with Joe Burrow desperately needing protection. Do you draft Sewell? Or do you draft Jamar Chase? They chose to draft Jamar Chase, and they reached the Super Bowl. So here's what I would say to that, Chris. If they had a massive hole at left tackle, absolutely. If their starting left tackle was Larry Borum, 100% take Joel. Don't take Roma Dunes, they take Joel. If Joe Alt's gone, take Olu Fashanu. Or, you know, I can't, I'm blanking on his name, Oregon State. Or Latham from Alabama. You know, take, take one of these guys. Absolutely. But you don't have a gaping hole. You've got a pretty good player in Braxton Jones. And I'm going to compare Braxton Jones to Charles Leno. Pretty good player. I know Bears fans seem to hate Leno and seem to like Jones. I'm not sure why, because they're very similar players. They're not overly strong. They're not maulers in the run game. You know, they can get beaten from time to time on the pass, but they're a middle-of-the-road starting left tackle. So for me, Chris, when I look at this offense right now, now, unless you tell me they went out and signed Mike Evans, you know, they went out and made a huge splash in free agency at receiver, that could change my opinion. But right now, I look at a receiver group with DJ Moore and Tyler Scott, and I think Tyler Scott's a wide receiver for, and I think Bayless Jones, you know, should be on the practice squad. Like, I don't think Bayless Jones should be given a roster spot this year. If he earns one, that's one thing. But Bayless Jones probably a practice squad guy. And if some other team wants to scoop him up, go ahead. Like, that that's where I am with Bayless Jones. So you have a ton of holes at wide receiver. You can go out and sign a, a short-term guy that's not too expensive, 10, 12 million. Marquise Brown is the guy that I keep thinking about in that perfect role where Marquise Brown is not going to get a four-year deal at this point. He's not going to get 19, 20 million. I would think he's probably going to get 12 million a year. So can I sign Marquise Brown like a two-year $25 million deal or a one-year $13 million deal? I want to do that. That's what I want to do with Marquise Brown, have a guy next to DJ Moore that knows what he's doing, and then go out and go get Roma Dunze or Malik Neighbors or whoever it is, Brock Bowers even, and you run more 12 personnel. So you have an additional weapon, right? That's how I look at this because Braxton Jones to me is fine. He's not great. And maybe in a couple of years, you decide you need to replace him. But at that point, you should have some young receivers. You should have some more, you know, youth in the interior offensive line, because for the most part, those aren't first round selections. You'll still have Cole Komet. You'll probably have the continued revolving door of running backs that Ryan Pulse is going to keep taking on day three, I suspect. At that point, then, and if you're good and you have the 25th pick, well, you can still get a good left tackle you know, in that spot or trade up a little bit to get a left tackle. You can do that. So that's the way I look at this. It's like the same way, you know, when you look at edge, and I know a lot of people want the Bears to take Dallas Turner or Latu or someone like that at nine and get an edge. To me, we've invested enough in the defense. I want offense with that pick because, yeah, you can't, you know, you may not be able to, you might have a bit of a hole 
at edge. But Demarcus Walker can hold that down pretty well. And next year, you can go get an edge, right? Next year, maybe you have the 20th pick, 22nd pick. Bears sneak into the playoffs next year. You can take an edge then. You can get a pretty good edge there. So there's going to be opportunities for the Bears to get good players here. I don't want to sit here and take... Now, I get Joe Alt and Darnell Wright would be freaking awesome to have bookend tackles like that for the next 10, 15 years. I get that. But to me, I'm looking at this, you know, putting my my fingers in the holes in the dam, and wide receiver is a flood. So I want to patch that up. I want to make sure that is a nice, strong unit for the rookie quarterback because I know Braxton Jones is going to be good enough and, and we can build up the interior, get a better center so that pocket isn't collapsing. And if Braxton Jones is your fourth or fifth best offensive lineman out of the group, okay, sign me up. Where can I sign up for that? So it would have to be a really unique situation for me to say, let's take Joe Alt. Like if you told me that three quarterbacks were gone, the three because I'm just going to assume Jaden Daniels is going in the top eight. So all three quarterbacks are gone. All three receivers are gone. And Brock Bowers is gone. If you put me in a situation where, and then let's say Atlanta goes another quarterback or goes defense. So if you put me in that situation where I don't have an opportunity for neighbors, Adunze, or Bowers, they're all gone. And the top edge is even gone. My choice at that point would be to trade down and still take a receiver because there's still other good first-round caliber receivers. But if I stuck at nine, then maybe I would take Alt simply because he's BPA. But then I would trade Braxton Jones. The idea of bumping Braxton Jones inside or making him your swing tackle is dumb because I think Braxton Jones as a pretty good, with two years of control and a pretty good left tackle, I think a team would give you a fourth-round pick for sure I'd be curious if you get a third round pick for Braxton. So that's where I am with that idea. All right, let's get to a couple more here. Let's do uh, Ash. What do the Bears do if Caleb Williams pulls an Eli Manning? What is the best way to manage that situation? All right, well, this is interesting, especially because Colin Cowherd just came out recently with the, well, I've heard Caleb Williams doesn't want to play for the Bears. And Colin Cowherd lives in L.A. and knows some people at USC. So some people on in the media were freaking out that, you know, he's going to do a power, power play. Let's say it's true. All right. Let's say it's true. And Caleb Williams refuses to play for the Bears. All right. Assume if that's the case, that he wants to play for Washington. Right. Because if you look at the other options... What option, you know, and maybe the Giants, he wants to go to the New York market. So my my point to that would be, if he is pulling a power play and refuses to play for Chicago, you could, you know, at that point, the best point, because I'm still thinking, all right, let's say it happens. And I don't think it will. I think this is Colin Cowherd um, talking out of his you-know-what, because that's what Colin Cowherd does. I'm not ripping Colin Cowherd. Colin Cowherd has been very successful at giving you hot takes. Colin Cowherd speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Colin Cowherd, one week, will talk about how Justin Fields needs to be traded, and the next week he will talk about how Justin Fields is, is the next Fran Tarkenton. It doesn't matter what Colin Cowherd says. He gets paid to give takes that go viral. That's his job, and he does a very good job of it. So... I don't put a lot of credence in this right now. 
if I start hearing more rumblings from insiders saying, yeah, there might be something going on here with Caleb not wanting to come to Chicago, then I'll start listening. But when Ian Rappaport reported that Caleb Williams had declared for the draft, remember what Ian Rappaport said? And that Caleb Williams would be excited to play for any team that drafts him. That, to me, came from Caleb Williams' camp, which was to debunk all the crap that was out there during the season. So am I going to believe an insider like Ian Rappaport that has connections all over the league? Or am I going to, you know, believe a guy who literally is paid for hot takes? I'm going to believe Ian Rappaport. But if Colin Coward is correct, and he goes, oh, I don't want to go to a a graveyard of, of quarterbacks like Chicago. Well, then Caleb Williams doesn't believe in himself as much as we were led to believe because Caleb Williams should feel he is the enough of a talent that he will elevate any team. And if you come to Chicago with the Chicago market, New York is split. Chicago is the third largest market. New York is split between the Jets and the Giants. L.A. does not care about sports unless it's the Lakers. And they're also split even for the seven people that like the Chargers and the Rams. So the Chicago Bears are, in essence, the number one football market. You have a huge opportunity for local advertising. You have a huge market to prop you up for national advertising. You have a good foundation around you. You're going into a good situation. You're going into a better situation than Washington or New England or the Giants currently are. So if Caleb Williams doesn't want to come here, then he's just making a dumb choice for himself, and he doesn't have the mental fortitude that we've talked about. So if that happens, fine. Then you're going to have to hold a team for ransom. You're going to have to explain to Caleb Williams, fine, we will trade this pick, but you will not get to pick your destination. We will pick it for you. That's your option. I am not telling Caleb Williams, okay, well, you really want to go to Washington? Okay, well, we'll take Drake May and take a second round pick and you can go home. No, I'm going to tell Caleb Williams camp, if you don't want to come here, you may go to Las Vegas, you may go to Atlanta, you may go to the Giants. We're going to take our best offer on the table. And that's your choice. That's what you get. So I'm not going to just cowtail to Caleb Williams' team. I'm going to make the best trade for the Bears. And the best trade for the Bears, to me, may not be go down to two for a couple second-round picks and take Drake May. Maybe that is, in the end, what Ryan Poles would want to do. That's going to be up to his evaluation. But I would expect that they will then say, they will look at all the teams, Washington, give me an offer, New England, give me an offer, Giants, Atlanta, Raiders, give me offers. We will take the best one, and we will make the trade. That's what I would expect to happen, all right? So if Caleb Williams is truly going to play hardball, We'll see how this plays out. I highly, highly doubt that's the case. Because if you are Caleb Williams and you come to Chicago and become a star quarterback, star, top five in the league, star quarterback, the Bears have not had that, Caleb, since your grandfather was born. The 1940s was the last time they had that. So... Caleb Williams, if he did that in Chicago, the level of start, think about what level of stardom Justin Fields has as a pretty good quarterback. If you are Caleb Williams and you become a top five quarterback in the league, you win MVPs, you win Super Bowls, 
in Chicago, you are a legend, a football legend. And he knows that. He knows that. He understands what that means. I guarantee it. So I'm not buying it. I don't think it's going to happen. All right. Been a, another lengthy podcast. I can't help myself. I like to talk. Hopefully you like to listen to me. All right. We will be back. We probably won't be back right away. I got a couple things I'm working on. I don't know if they're going to come through or not in terms of guests and stuff. We will definitely do another podcast within the next couple weeks here in February, but we'll see how things break out and where the guests are and everything. So we'll talk to you as soon as I got a podcast together. Bear down, everybody. Talk to you soon. Adios. Adios.